You you hit Going on the big thing hill. that I talk about with my guys quite a bit. If you can come in and establish yourself as a trusted expert, as somebody who's really there to help them get better or do something better in their life, and mm-hmm. you've established that trust, when you come back and say, unfortunately, that's going to take a little bit more money or a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. Customers are a lot more understanding. Right. And when you walk into a house, in our case, everybody expects we're going to be a master electrician, a master plumber, a master door setter. The list goes on. And the answer is nobody's ever good at all of it. And I'm sure somebody listening to this will say, well, my father-in-law is because, well, my father-in-law is, by the way. And I have to live up to that model all the time, which is really hard. But that's a whole other episode in counseling. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. So... So when you go in there and you establish that trust, then they're more willing to work with you as a partner because they go, you know what? You came in and Andy, you said this and this, and I didn't have the right data. Now I'm really ready to do that. That's what I've seen is that when people say, okay, now that you've come in and you've assessed the situation, you've run into termite damage and I see it. Okay. I believe you guys seem to know what you're talking about. Building a trust. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Generate Your Value podcast. I'm your co-host, Andy McDowell, founder and owner of Generate Your Value, providing life, leadership, and small business coaching services in the Atlanta area. And I'm Zach Levy, your other co-host. I run a nationwide financial service business with my wife, Megan. Together, Zach and I have the intention to bring you tips, concepts, ideas, suggestions, stories, and analogies from A to Z, which will help you to grow your personal brand and small business in such a way that joy, happiness, and success as you define it for yourself are achieved. We hope to use our gifts, talents, and experiences in business to generate value in your life. And with that being said, let's move to our topic for today. Welcome to the Generate Your Value podcast. My name is Andy McDowell, co-host of the show. And I'm Zach Levy, your other co-host. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by the Chris Lalamia, owner of the Trusted Toolbox. Chris, great to see you. Glad to be here, guys. Glad to have you. So Chris is a business owner, came, did the corporate to entrepreneur route and created his business called the Trusted Toolbox here in the North Atlanta area. Very successful one in the home repair Home remodeling, would you say? I would say a little uh, bit of home remodeling. Yeah, home repair remodeling, the very successful part, we're working on. We're working on. (laughs) He's also in the midst of creating a training institute for that particular industry. And last week, or was it last week or this week, you hit Amazon. Literally hit Amazon. This week. uh, St. Patrick's Day. With his first book, which we're going to get into at the end end of our discussion. Zach and I have known Chris for... For a year or two, and his story is amazing in terms of his journey, both in his corporate career as well as his uh, entrepreneurial journey. And so we thought you'd make a nice guest to come in to be inspiring to others that are thinking about making that jump and be able to talk about some lessons learned and I got a lot sort of, of the gotchas and ahas and that kind of thing. So we'll get into that. But let's let's start with your career. Can you sort of give us the Reader's Digest version of 
your journey after college or where you went to college and teach yeah. today? So originally from Michigan, went to Michigan Tech and got an engineering degree, went to North Carolina and doubled down and got a master's in it and decided to get into uh, engineering. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to run my own business. And I realized that after three years of being an engineer that I had zero business experience. So it was either go get an MBA or go work for a company. So I ended up working for a company now called Accenture, went through that system, which was awesome. One of the greatest places I worked. Ended up in uh, financial services, working in a banking institution, but really was doing the fix-it stuff, using the engineering principles that you learn as a problem solver to get into their business and help get better at what they're doing. And then eventually, I ended up at SunTrust Banks here in Atlanta. But eventually, I started to think about the same things I said when I was 17, and that was, I've always wanted to run my own business. And I decided to start looking at other opportunities. Yeah, so you had that uh, corner office job. You were managing or leading 400 people, had the six-figure income, which I'm sure had to weigh on your mind when you uh, were looking back on your child desires of owning your own business and so forth and go, that's a heavy decision, right? Yeah, I had a pretty successful uh, corporate career. And honestly, at a pretty young age, I had 400 people working for me. Mm -hmm. I had that job. I was in the corner office had the Mercedes, had the eight custom suits, had the house in the country club, playing golf, doing all the stuff that everybody thinks is success. And uh, it was intoxicating and it it kept me there and I was excited about it and I loved it. And I I learned a lot as I kept going. But eventually when you start throwing your briefcase over your shoulder, walking home every night at seven, eight o'clock at night and not seeing anything for what you did, you start to wonder if what you're doing is what you were here to do. Right. Well, I mean, you hear that all the time on the news, right? That, yeah, you want success. Like you said, you want the Mercedes six figures and so forth, but there's a sacrifice for it in your personal life and and, in other areas. Yeah. I think if you went back and asked my my family at the time, they'd say it was pretty miserable being around me. It was was hard. I mean, I, I still had a lot of fun in life. I still enjoy life. I always have. But they said at that time, it would definitely was tough because it's not like I can turn it off when I work for somebody else anyway. And right. the corporate grind, when you're in there, I didn't think that I wasn't owning my own business. I didn't give them 40 hours and that was it. And that was never the case. I was always in in it to win it. And uh, you start burning out uh, and you start wearing out. And then you, what you do is you start taking out on, on uh, people you love, really. Yeah, but all, all that money comes responsibility and you've got people above you that are, you know, pointing a finger every week or every month at you, where's the results, where's the results? And that kind of life is not easy. That's not an easy life because yeah. you're, you're felt, you're, you feel like you're responsible, but you're not accountable. And mm-hmm. as a, somebody who now as uh, three of us sitting around here as entrepreneurs talk about this, we feel accountable for every hour of our life, every minute of our life. But when you're in corporate America and you're working for somebody else, you're not, you don't have the total responsibility or accountability to take care of everything. And and when that weight starts to build on you and you can't fix things that you thought you could fix, even if you felt like you were Superman, it really starts to knock you down and wear you out. Yeah. Well, when you're working for yourself, all the hard work is hopefully translating into more business, which a high percentage of that is going into your pocket. Whereas even in the corporate world, not being the head dog that owns that business, you know, shareholders own it, you're limited to whatever salary it is that you do get, no matter you're still responsible for everything. And if it takes you 60 hours a week, so be it, you know, but it's somewhat limited in a finite amount that you're going to get out of that. 
Exactly. Unless you have like a lot of stock options and the company really takes off in the stock market, you're limited. Whereas as an entrepreneur, that's not necessarily limited. And Chris, I feel like, you know, your story, the reason you jumped into the entrepreneurial world is the reason a lot of people do. A lot of highly successful people, motivated people, they put in the extra hours for somebody else long enough and realize it turns into what have you done for me lately, not a temporary sacrifice to have what you want. Right. That, is that the way you felt? That's a great point because, you know, I was, I used to joke, I was Mr. Third inning when it came to my kid's baseball game. And the mm -hmm. minute I left, I felt guilty. And I was, my, the management style was to feel guilty that you left at five o'clock to make your kid's game. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there grinding those hours and you still went back and did those hours later on in the afternoon after the game was over. And, and you started to go, well, wait a minute, you didn't fulfill my needs, my wants. And yeah, it really started to worry out. So, Chris, I mean, in 2008, you started your business just before a recession, right? I know Andy and I have talked. I started my business just before a pandemic, a year before, a couple years before the pandemic. Andy did the same thing. So for those that are in the middle of a pandemic right now, looking at that, or they're in the middle of their journey, are there any major insights you would give on, one, how to handle that, but two, would you do it in the same timing again? Well, we're going to come back and we're going to re-listen re, uh, re to this episode three years from now after we write this book, because the book we would write is why I st started my business right before the, <laughs> the edge of the cliff. Yeah. What were you thinking? What was I thinking? I even had access to our economist who was telling me we weren't going to go into a recession. I felt like I had a good idea. Nobody could talk me off of my great optimistic idea, but I did it. You know, I think everybody, you, you got to look at the economy and we, when you put a business plan together before you start a business, you can't account for what's going to happen. And you guys have lived even worse than what I lived was the pandemic and the, the recession. Well, no, we saw it coming. You know, there might've been some clues about a recession, but a pandemic, we had no idea. Well, I don't, I don't think anybody saw that, hey, we can shut down the entire world. <laughs> In fact, the first time I heard it was a, was a March 9th, 2020. And uh, I thought this guy was chicken little. I thought he was crazy. He was talking to me. He decided not to come to my office to talk to me about doing some more business together. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, no, we're, my business is over. We're, we're going to shut this thing down. And I said, man, you're crazy. And literally seven days later, I was shutting my business down. I was laying people off. And I was dismantling everything I had built for 12 years, which was emotional. Frankly, going through it right now, talking to you guys, I mean, it's hard to do it without thinking about how hard that was to pull it off. But you asked that question. If you want to start your own business, but you don't know what's going to be in front of you, you don't know. And the thing that we've all learned is that you can pivot, you can resolve, and you can overcome those problems and get through it. And I did through the recession. And the reason I wrote the book, frankly, was I always joked. I said, well, when I write my book, I'm going to tell everybody, start it right before a recession because you're really going to learn what it's like to run a lean and mean business. Yeah, absolutely. For me, running into the pandemic has been about pivoting. You know, you have a certain goals or desires, how you're going to do things between acquiring customers and doing marketing, social media, and all those pieces. Because I set a plan of sort of doing a little bit in parallel to each other. And pandemic made me to pivot and go fully with the marketing, social media, start a podcast and all those things. And when the pa pa pandemic goes away, do a major 180 flip. So hopefully I've done enough on the marketing and social media side through the pandemic to then go after customers 100%.
You know, Gina Wickman, who is uh, an author, has the EOS system. A lot of people follow him. I actually bought into the traction system as well. He says that over a 10-year span, uh, you always have eight good ones, but you'll have two bad ones. Mm -hmm. And if you plan for that and just know it's coming. And so I think with that mindset, anybody can do it. And that's what makes us all as entrepreneurs the best because our optimism will overcome those two bad years. If you stay with it and have that resolve and have that problem-solving skills and that resilience to power through, you can, but you've got to be able to, like, as you said, pivot. Well, so, you got to be flexible. Well, yeah. I mean, and as we talked about last week, business strategies got to be fluid. So right, all kind of ties back in. I love it. But Chris, that leads me to really then a question that popped up is with that right there, the speaking of the optimism and things like that and figuring out basically what road to walk, if you will, what throughout your career have been the biggest aha moments and the biggest learning lessons? So I've had a, a number of aha moments throughout my corporate life. Like I said, I was very proud of telling everybody after six years of getting an engineering degree, I only took two business classes. Ha, look at me. I'm smarter than everybody. <laughs> you want to know who my bosses were? Those were the guys that got the MBAs because yeah. the engineer can only do so much. So I learned really early on that business acumen is huge and being uh, full of yourself and being the smartest engineer is not the way to go through it. So that was one. My biggest aha moment when I started my business was this. And uh, I grew up and I my first job, my real first job was in a machine shop in, in Jackson, Michigan, and I learned a ton there. And then I went on to go to go to college. And then I ended up as an engineering intern. And then from that, I worked in a number of other machine shops just to pick up odd money throughout the years and then started in corporate America. I've never worked with the general public. I have never worked in a restaurant. I've never worked in a retail establishment. Mm -hmm. And my first business, the Trusted Toolbox, is a business-to-consumer business. And I am dealing with the general public. Ha! Guess what? I'm in the retail business. And... It didn't hit me until six months into starting my business that my business plan had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, so you and I are kind of kindred spirits in that we both came from the corporate world. I, I was in an international global business. Uh, a lot of my year was spent on airplanes and hotels and other parts of the world outside the United States. And now here I'm coming into to the entrepreneurial uh, business to business world with small businesses that are right here in my own backyard, so to speak. And I know no one because I've spent, you know, my 20 plus career with Boeing and other parts of the world with the governments. My market was governments perspective. And to me, that's been the biggest challenge for me is from the networking perspective and getting in, in amongst that tribe as we go back to our tribe episode. Yeah, because getting could to argue, know people because I'm truly starting from scratch. You could argue that your scratch. network is bigger than ours because yeah. it's global. But when you when you start to go into a business, you realize that my global network of being in this global uh, economy that you were in, you've got friends in places I probably can't even spell, and yet they can't help you with what you're trying to do right now. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Chris, I actually have another question for you: Is going from that space because. I talk to a lot of people who want to go into business for themselves, but they've been in the same scenario where they've been in this corporate B2B world and they've never dealt with the general public, but they're going into business in that space that they have. What kind of sales strategies did you implement? What kind of sales trainings did you do? Things like that. Can you talk on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I When I first started, and I hit, like I said, it was an aha moment for me and I started to bring in what we were doing. There's a marketing piece, but there's that brand promise. 
And I use Home Depot as the great brand promise. When you walk into Home Depot, you think you're going to get the best product at the best price and great service. That's their brand promise to you mm-hmm. when you walk in there. So when people stride into Home Depot, they're not hesitant. They may be hesitant because they are as a DIYer trying to find something, but they know that Home Depot has built that brand of one, two, three. And you realize that's what I had to build is that when somebody calls our company, they expect that we're going to leave your house in better condition. We're going to show up when we say we're going to show up and we're going to leave your house expecting 100% satisfaction. And that's our brand promise. Uh It is very hard to deliver on it as, and I put this in my book, one of the best lines I've ever heard uh, was when I was in corporate America and I had a commercial loan ops uh, group and that's docking loans for commercial sales guys. And that commercial sales manager came up to me and said, Chris, one thing I learned early on in my life is it's always better to ask for good service than provide it. And you know what? He's right. It is hard to provide great service for people with all different walks of life, different expectations. Yep. And when you're going into somebody's house, it's even harder to hit their expectations because we just walked into your castle. We walked into your number one asset and you've maybe never had somebody work in your house before. And when you walk into Home Depot, you're like, well, I've been told it's going to be the best product, best price, Mm -hmm. great service. So that's what I expect. And I can control that environment. Well, I think in the business consumer world, the retail is the hardest. If you you think about the circle of a potential market that you're going after in that kind of line of business, the diversity of the demographics of people that fit in that circle is just across the board. Yeah, right? I when agree. you when you're in business to business, your circle is much smaller. You your customer, your set of customers have eighty or ninety percent of the same demographic, if you will, that you're calling upon. I know this from when I was in college, working in a shoe store, dealing with the general public. Oh my goodness, <laughs> the things that I saw and the things that I heard and the How about situations. The things you smelled. Well, yeah, How about the smells. <laughs> Try being in management for Waffle House. No, oh, there you go. <laughs> so you guys have, you guys lived it. So you understand, you know, that's what makes the world great is the difference. The hard part is providing that great service to this very different mindset all mm-hmm. the time. And that's what B2C is. If you ask me if, if that's worse than B2B, I would say no, because I'm used to it now and I understand what we're up against. Right. And delivering on that brand promise has been really hard, especially as you try to grow and scale your business. Yeah. So let's talk about your business in a little bit of detail. The trusted toolbox, as we said, it's in the home repair and uh, remodeling business. What do you feel like are your critical, what I call critical success factors in your business? What do you have to do 100% of the time, absolutely right, to, to keep your business growing in the delivery of your service? Yeah, that's that's a tough one because it, obviously everybody would say everything. You can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you prioritize? So where do you start? And uh, you start with, you know, first you got to get the phones to ring and you got to get people to try to use your service. And then when you try to convert them to your service, that's the sales process. In my process though, because it's not a fixed, it's not a fixed price. Like you said, with the shoes or Waffle House, you have a fixed price that you're Mm -hmm. selling on and you know what your Mm -hmm. margin is. When you're working on homes, I'm not sure how how long it's going to take me to uh, replace that door, replace that window. And everybody thinks, well, you're an expert. You should know. Right. Well, you don't know when you run into termite damage or water or whatever the variables may be. So the basically your profit is established the minute you're looking at the job with the customer. 
And that is a hard thing to overcome when you underestimate mm-hmm. something early and you've set that expectation at a lower bar for a customer. It, it's tough. But it's the delivery on service. At the end of the day, that's what it is. And that is a consistent delivery model of home repair services, in my case, or B2C, being consistent. And I've used this with uh, my guys a lot. When you walk into McDonald's, you expect that the quarter pounder will taste the same in China that it will in, in Germany that it will in the U.S. And do you like them? No. But you know what? They may be the same. Zach was saying, I don't eat those. I get it. I don't either. <laughs> I beg to differ, though. The quarter pounder <laughs> does taste different in Germany than the U.S. Yeah, it it tastes like real food. Okay. So we use Chick-fil-A here in the South as our model when I'm training my guys. But it's the consistency of delivery. If my if one guy shows up and he finishes something in 30 minutes and my next guy shows up and does it in two hours and it's the same task in the homeowner's mind, mm-hmm. he's like, well, that wasn't the same delivery model. I don't tell my 30-minute guy to slow down, and I don't tell my two-minute guy to speed up and cut corners in his mind. So it's hard to deliver on those expectations. And doing that, that's probably, at the end of the day, that's probably the biggest thing. Making sure you make the money you're supposed to, that's the estimate at the time of delivery. I mean, uh, time of uh, estimate. But you got to deliver on that brand promise. And if you don't do that, that's when it starts to fall apart. Yeah, and I, I had the same dilemma in my business with Boeing, so... We were a project-based business like you are. You're going to somebody's house with a project to do, right? And we would have to estimate what we thought it was going, without ever stepping foot in the country or in just talking to the customer over the phone to try and estimate things. And our bailiwig was always, what data are we going to have available to us? The more data that we have, the shorter we can make the project. If we don't have access to a certain percentage of the data, then we've got to go do research and other things that takes time and money to go figure out in order to have the same level of risk in the project that we estimated for. Because where we made the most money is when our estimate on the project is the actual, right? If we waver from that, particularly if we go long on it, then our profits just start going downhill. That I talk about with my guys quite a bit. If you can come in and establish yourself as a trusted expert, as somebody who's really there to help them get better or do something better in their life, and mm-hmm. you've established that trust, when you come back and say, unfortunately, that's going to take a little bit more money or a little bit more time, mm-hmm. customers are a lot more understanding. Right. And when you walk into a house, in our case, everybody expects we're going to be a master electrician, a master plumber, a master door setter. The list goes on. And the answer is nobody's ever good at all of it. And I'm sure somebody listening to this will say, well, my father-in-law is because, well, my father-in-law is, by the way. And I have to live up to that model all the time, which is really hard, but that's a whole other episode in counseling. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. So, so when you go in there and you establish that trust, then they're more willing to work with you as a partner because they go, you know what? You came in and Andy, you said this and this, and I didn't have the right data. Now I'm really ready to do that. That's what I've seen is that when people say, Okay, now that you've come in and you've assessed the situation, you've run into termite damage, and I see it. Okay, I believe you guys seem to know what you're talking about. Building a trust, yeah. So yeah, I definitely understand that. Chris, in order to build that trust, I mean, to have the trusted toolbox, right? To deliver on that brand promise, like you were talking about, the priorities, where's your focus to pull? from the labor pool? I mean, where do you pull the right people from to deliver that promise? And what kind of training goes into that? 
the the labor pool is amazing. I, I love talking about this. That's actually a big part of my book at the end. In fact, probably one of my favorite chapters. My guys are gig economy workers. What's a gig economy worker? These are guys who are artists. These are guitar players. They're piano players. They're computer programmers. But in my case, they're carpenters, they're handymen, and they like to work with their hands, mm-hmm. which for a lot of people, they look down on. For me, I'd say they truly are the same level of artists as, gar- as guitar players, computer programmers, and painters. These guys can do things in houses that none of us can sit here doing. They are uh, incredible. They also have that mindset of, I'm an artist. I'm a lone wolf. I'm used to doing things on my own. Many of my guys have never put a resume together, and yet they work for me. How did I find them? It's hard because you have to beat these guys out of the bushes because they've been told for years, especially in our world, that they're lower class, they're this, and so they just work job to job, and hopefully they can put something together to take care of their family. Mm -hmm. And when we find them and bring them into the fold, we call them our lone wolves coming into the wolf pack we find that these guys really start to shine because they're artists and it doesn't matter if it's the home service industry, which I know, but now, but I think that's that at the training part is again, I can go on for hours on this, but what I've learned with these guys is when they come in, they're lone wolves. And if I choke them down, they become domesticated dogs and domesticated dogs will turn their problems back over to you. Mm Mm-hmm. My lone wolves, when allowed to show their inner artist and go out there and do things like they want to do it within the confines of my brand and our our delivery model, and they buy into it, I found that these guys, in fact, I've got two guys who came up to me and said, I was on my own. Chris, I'm making more money with you, and I get more time with my family now. And my grandkids are proud when I show up in my truck and I show them off what I'm doing. And that's really cool. And that's really the part that really starts to hit home. Like, you know what? I'm starting to build something here that's really cool. So you're not the only game in town. There are other companies and and then the independents that do the work that you do. How do you try to differentiate yourself against your competition? What? How do you make yourself unique, unique. in the market? That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. What makes us unique? And that's the answer that we try to answer. That's the question we try to answer all the time. What makes us unique? What I've done is I've taken those lone wolves who are great artists and they will do great things in their house, but put up against a pressure point, they sometimes will back off. And that means everybody has been burned by somebody in their house. They've either taken half the money and not done the job, took all the money and did half the job. When they ran into something they didn't know, they just told you that, well, my car broke down or my truck broke down or I can't get there or they just don't even answer your phone calls. So they've all been burned. What sets us apart is our communication, and that's one of our six fundamentals, and that's the, the the linchpin. Because I have an office, and you can always get a hold of us, and you have a number of guys at the size we are now here in Atlanta, we're going to get you taken care of. You may not like everything we did. You may not like the process, but we got you taken care of, and we didn't run away and hide. So that was that's what makes us unique, uh, delivering on that brand promise. And allowing these guys to, again, be great artists, but we can also bring another artist to the table if you didn't like that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of it's based off of consistency. You, you can expect to have the same kind of experience over and over again if you keep using this. Yeah. One of my best customers always calls and says, I want this guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy she wants isn't really the best plumber that I have in the company. And so my scheduler now... Because it's not me, it, I, I leave it up to them. We'll say, well, 
he's not available, but I have this person. And I'm, I'm sure he's going to be just as good. And then she'll call back again saying, how oh, he was great. I still would like the next guy next time. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy she's talking about, I, I can promise you, he does exquisite work. But if I ask him to change out a toilet, mm-hmm. uh, he would be there all day because that's not a skill set. So right. we're able to figure out what the customer wants and match it up and uh, get the right guy to the job at the time they want. Right. Which sometimes can be a little bit different. I mean, take an electrician, for example, I'd have to imagine you, you order a, or need a service from an electrician. They're so nearly focused on a particular area when it comes to home repair that you could send anybody, whoever's available on your team to go and they're going to get the job done. But you're walking in and have to handle anything that's within the house, whether it be exactly electricity based or water based or wall cement paint based or whatever kind of things as i tell a local hvac guy that you may know Mm -hmm. i wish all i worked on was heating and air because that's easy yeah Yeah. you know in fact that's what wears my lone wolves out when they do the same thing over and over they are not uh satisfied so my guys like doing different things every time and it allows them to be that inner artist but you got to embrace that and that's the one of the big things i learned uh training these guys is that Choke them down, make them do it your way, and they'll do it your way, but they'll show you that doing it their way or your way isn't their way and that they're leaving. And so that's a fine line, but that's been uh, one of the great management challenges for me. But I've also, I've, I've really enjoyed that part. So let's move on to one of your t- two new ventures, which is the Home Services Institute. Why did you start that and what problem are you trying to solve? What yeah, the problem I'm trying to solve there is uh, what I, I keep talking about with these uh, lone wolves. They're great. They're amazing. But they really don't want to have to talk to you when they get there. They don't want to get you into the conversation. They're not the Horst Schultz, Ritz Carlton model. It's their pleasure. They feel like when they show up, they're going to show you how great they are. But to allow them to have an easy transaction, which means to them they get to go do what they were supposed to do, use their mind, solve a problem, whether you're an auto mechanic or an HVAC technician or electrician, you get to solve their problem and be done. But the customer wants to have a little bit more. And if I can train them in their own vernacular and their own way of learning to get into that transaction earlier, they start making more money. Mm-hmm. And more money at the end of the day means more time with my family, more ability to take care of my grandkids, more ability to take care of my own family. Maybe I get to move into a house that's a little bit bigger than I was in before. So that's why we decided to uh, start this. I really focused on training about three years ago at our company, and I saw a huge change. I used to think about training as a necessary evil. I had to do it. I used to get ready Tuesday night, come in Wednesday morning, you know, tell the guys you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you did this wrong. Hey, you got to keep calling your customers. And it was falling flat. They weren't really getting into it. And so I actually turned over training to my operations manager and I sat in the back and started to observe and these really started to buy into the stories and the way we were doing it. And I started to see a huge difference in my company. My brand promise was starting to be delivered because as an owner, I want them to do something. But as these employees that we're talking about in this character, they have needs. Their mm-hmm. needs are very easy to see. Back to corporate America and when you were in the middle of it, you didn't know what those needs were. These guys were always out for different things. There was always an angle. There was a political agenda. Not my guys. My guys are WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. And I love it. 
Because I know when they come in there and tell me I need more money, they're not angling for anything else. You know what they're asking for? More money. Or, hey, I need tomorrow off. There's no angle. They just need tomorrow off. When they try to be a political guy, they can't do it. That's not their no. model. So, Well, just like you said before, they're artists and they enjoy their craft. And they want to stick with that because that's what their passions and their why in life is. Exactly. And so they want to figure out ways they can stay doing what they're doing, but bring in more money for the family. Right. This is like you said, there's no political agendas. There's no angling for status or power within a corporation or anything of that nature is. I really enjoy what I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure out a way, particularly with the cost of living going up and kids going to college or those type of things. How is it can I, I can bring in more revenue into the home per se? So a lot of times these guys, they either grow up in the trade or they've decided to go in the trade. I hope it happens more and more, by the way, because I think skilled trades is a great way to do it. Even though I've got a master's in mechanical engineering, mm -hmm. people are like, hey, you can't sell that. I'm like, I can, because I grew up also working through uh, college as a machinist. So I'm into it. I think these guys can do well. And that's why I started the Home Service Institute. I think a lot of the business owners don't realize that if they give these skills, to, these guys can actually go out and make more money. So where are you in the process of starting an institute? Have you actually launched and... We have, actually. So we're sitting here in 21, and we just start, launched the website a month ago. Mm -hmm. It's called the thehomeserviceinstitute.com. It's a series of videos on the lowest end. It's a pretty low entry point because I want to get as many companies as I can involved in it because I believe in it so much. I think it speaks to the guys that they're all working for or they're working for them. This goes to that plumber, that electrician. That HVAC guy who, you know, I've got three or four guys, but they're just not doing it the way I want to do it. Mm -hmm. I wish they'd do it my way. Well, now you can uh, subscribe to us at a pretty low entry point of five ninety five a year and get these videos and start playing them and then punching those points up. And guess what? I watched it over time with my guys. We have, uh, when I first started, my average tenure of my handyman was about seven months. And right now we're at two years. And that's pretty cool. And I know that's part of the training. That's amazing. I know with especially building a business, retention can be make or break. So especially in your industry where you get the lone wolves, typically if they were to get into a company structure, they'd be gone in a heartbeat, like you said. So that really speaks to the uniqueness and how special it is what you're doing. So that's amazing. Yeah. No, that's those, the guys are amazing, but they're not told they're amazing because again, hand labor and labor has become looked down on. And I continually bring them back up and let them know that the things they're doing, and you'll hear this when I walk in the house, you'll hear, well, I, I would have done this, but my wife won't let me get on a ladder anymore. Well, I would have done this, but my tools are up North, or I would have done this if I had more time. Those are all three woulda, wouldas. Mm -hmm. Guess what? My guys show up with the tools, the skills, and the ability and time to do it. And these guys... If you've ever watched one who really knows what they're doing in person and look at it as an artist stroking a paintbrush on a canvas, they really are. And uh, that's where I tell these guys, that's how you got to think about your job every day and not think about the money you're going to be making. Think about how proud you are at the end of the day of the work. And when that happens, they start to feel like they're part of something bigger. And mm -hmm. don't we all want to be part of something bigger? Yeah, I did. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's funny you mentioned this because I did the exact same thing with my team. So... Every airport is different. Every airport has 
a certain set of runways, a certain set of directions that those runways go in, a certain set of terrain that surrounds the airports, and they all present sort of their unique challenges. And so I used to call my guys artists all the time because I used to say our canvas, the white canvas that a, that a painter starts with to make a piece of art, is the set of rules that govern how we do our work, you know, for safety reasons and everything. This is the sandbox that I use a lot in our episodes that we can paint our picture on. And then we go in and be artists to develop flight operational flows into and out of an airport with those challenges of terrain and runway configuration and so forth, that you really truly have to be an artist to make this machine, if you will, really flow with airplanes. And you've got to be an artist to make that happen. And they were, my, my folks really resonated with that, like your folks resonate with that. Yeah, I can see that. Phraseology. Especially because they, they get to solve a huge problem. And when mm-hmm. they're done, they walked away going, all those people got into this place and all the people got out of the place safely. And they got to do what they wanted to do. They had no idea we were around, but isn't that really cool? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that part is the, the part of feeling something, a part of something bigger. So I, I have to be honest in saying the first time that you mentioned you were doing this to me, the very th- first thought that came into my mind is, Aren't you enabling your competition by doing this? I love it because people ask me uh, a lot of times when I run out networking, hey, uh, Chris, who's your biggest competition? It's the homeowner. There's nobody else. <laughs> and so there's plenty to Never go around. Never would have thought of that. No. Yeah, yeah, it's the homeowner because they can decide to do nothing. They can decide to do it themselves. They can decide they're going to wait for a while and make it a bigger project and go with a remodeler or a big painter or a larger thing. So if you're asking me if I want to uh, enable my competition, I'm like, absolutely. Because if I have some lone wolves who buy into this, especially here in the local market, we have 5 million uh, local households. That's single family dwellings. That's our target market. And a certain price range that we like to work in, it gets even smaller. And so the answer is, I think, yes, I would love to enable it because it's one of those things where you're making a market because if those guys start doing consistent delivery, then we all start doing consistent delivery. They might actually want to buy into the trust duplex here locally, but also I expect this to go national, if not international, if I can pull it off. I mean, I've got some pretty big ideas. <laughs> Welcome to be an entrepreneur again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, never satisfied feeling. It's the never satisfied. I'm content, but not satisfied. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked, well, aren't, aren't you busy enough? I'm like, yeah, not yet. I'll <laughs> let you know. So with the Institute, Chris, I mean, do subscribers, attendees, however you would word that, do they already have to be in the industry or could it be somebody that, could it be targeted to somebody that's saying, well, I kind of want to delve into this world. I want to get my feet wet and see what this is about. We made it a really low price point entry for the stock model of videos because I know as a busy business owner, when somebody tries to pitch me on something, decline, delete, you're right? We all get those emails. We've always got those LinkedIn messages. Hey, are you ready for a CPA? Okay, stop. I have a lot of things going on. So we made this a really low price point. And I realized that people like me, uh, as a business owner, we have an ego and we think we're running it great. And uh, I'm hoping to get in and help them make it even greater because this was one of my biggest uh, pain points. And when I outsourced it to my operations manager and got to sit back, 
That was another aha moment I had two years ago, which is I'm in the training business now. I'm really not in the home improvement business anymore. And our training and our delivery has improved my guy's lifestyle. It has improved my delivery. It's improved my customer's perception of our company. And here I was beating my head against the wall, telling them, call your customers before you get there. Okay, let's go figure out how to do this. <laughs> well, and I think you brought up a great point, Andy. We've touched on this before, is knowing what industry you're in. And a lot of entrepreneurs can mistake what industry they're in. An example I've used in the past is, you know, the a lot of the railroad moguls back in early days of travel saw themselves in the railroad business, not the transportation business. So when mm. airlines started to take over, they were now just completely out of business instead of seeing themselves. So I love that you said that. I love that line. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about that, but that's, that's great insight. It is hard to realize. Now, if I started my business on day one going, I'm in the training business, I, I'd be out of business. I mean, I, I had to live it. I had to develop it and I had to uh, screw up a lot. But when I realized I was in the training business, uh, it really has started to unlock that next level and it started to move me up to the ability to kind of get above. And people talk about this all the time in the, the e-myth, working on your business, not in your business. But when mm -hmm. I realized we're in the training business, it was really hard to, to get back in. So I'll go out and do estimates. I'll go out there. I would not show a guy how to work a saw better than them. And if I am, they can't work with me. I'm a pretty good... I actually... Honestly, I'm a pretty good handyman. I know where my limitations are. Uh, pretty good carpenter, pretty good drywall guy, but I've got guys who are way better than me. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, and something I want to kind of back up into what you just said, and this is a broad spectrum for the new entrepreneur or the entrepreneur that has been trying and trying. You said you screwed up a lot. I want to replace that with the word, you know, fail, right? So many people, so many entrepreneurs are so scared of scarring their knees. Can you speak on that for a second? I love that you said that. I had an entrepreneur a friend of mine, a good mentor who always said, we don't screw up. We don't fail. We learn. I said, mm. but why does learning have to cost so damn much? Amen. <laughs> Amen. The answer is you need to. And, and so that was why from the time I started that I leapt in and you've got to go try. And when you get scarred and you get bloodied, that's where the optimism comes back up and the resilience and the ability to problem solve and mm. pick yourself back up. And it sounds, I hate it when people say, hey, pick yourself up from the canvas. As somebody who's been knocked down to it a, a couple of times, it's tough, but you got to get out there and try because when you do and you sit back for a minute and just sit there and uh, really uh, assess what you did, you can get better at it. And so Albert Einstein said, you can't solve a problem at the same level at which it was originated or you can't. So you need to elevate yourself from it. And I actually put that line in the book and I probably just screwed it up, but so much for <laughs> realizing my own quote. Uh, again, another failure. So no, it's, it's great because I think you have to, because if you don't, if you don't, then you're not trying hard enough. Well, I've heard it put this way is the successful people, the people we look to that have quote unquote made it have failed more times than we've even thought about trying. I agree with that. And I, I put this as well. There was a point in my, my arc of my 13 years that I felt like, you know what? I kind of got there. And uh, what I did was I got knocked back down and said, I always heard the term success was a journey. I didn't believe the term success is a journey. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not a term and it's not a, it's not a trite statement. Success is a journey and your own definition of success. And you said it earlier, Zach, is 
I am content, but I, I mean, I'm happy, but I'm not content. I'm going to continue mm-hmm. because I feel like I've got so much more to give. Yeah, I'm just a strong believer and I'll keep beating it over the head in this podcast and in my business and everything that about the journey. Life is a journey. You have a business journey. This podcast is a journey. As I've said that multiple times on this podcast that Zach and I are on a journey. Matter of fact, I had one of our previous guests that we all know that put it out on LinkedIn today. And I responded saying, thank you so much for joining Zach and I on our journey. Yeah. In a comment in that section, because this is a journey. Life is about a journey. It's not we have to live in the present in this little slice of time, but we have a, a million or more of these slices of present time yeah. in this journey. And you have to look at your your career, whether it's in the corporate world, in, in the zoo, as you say, or in the, in the wild of entrepreneurship, that it's a journey. And just like a train is not flat around the whole rest of the world, you've got ups and downs in your journey that you're going to be walking over on your journey in life, right? Yeah, another guy uh, tell me, I, I actually did not put this in the book. It just hit me again, you guys. He said, don't ever let your highs be too high, your lows to be mm-hmm. too low. And as an entrepreneur, you're going to find yourself be really low. And as an entrepreneur, you're going to want to be high. And you're going to keep going for optimism. But just don't let those lows get too low. And you got to keep it even. Mm-hmm. And he said, <laughs> a lot of people on the podcast won't know who I am, my personality type, but let's just say I'm a very passionate individual. And so <laughs> his feedback to me was... <laughs> Maybe that's why we love you. <laughs> Which was, keep it real, keep it level. Yeah, so, I've had mentors yank my leash, if you will, quite a few times. So I, Chris, I completely understand what you're saying. I think I've scared people at points, but <laughs> late on that. So on the note, Andy, you brought up you know being in a zoo and moving on, but... On that note, Chris, on your book, right? When and when was and why did you decide to write the book? I I decided to write the book. So I started out as a joke. Hey, I'm going to write my book. Hey, when I write my book, you're in it. I'm going to tell everybody, hey, write your book right before the recession hits, not knowing that this thing called a pandemic would double <laughs> mm-hmm. down on a recession. Right. But I did about about a year and a half ago. And I just, every night I just start writing and I just pull up a uh, document and start typing. And I just kept picking at it, picking at it. And, and then I went back and read it and said, man, I think I have something here. The reason I wanted to do it was uh, I felt like the journey was was a blast. There are a lot of times, and yet, like I said to a lot of people, you can have those first four years. And I slept on the couch a ton in my family. Still married, thank God. But it was tough and going through that. So I wanted to relate people back to that because... The things I think I did well and the things I think I did not do well, I wanted to put down on paper with my journey. So that's why I I wanted to do it literally two months before the pandemic really became a real thing, and that's March. And when the pandemic hit, I went, well, I'm out of money. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So there will be no writing of a book for Chris. <laughs> things picked up for us in the home service business, which was great. So in August, I actually engaged a ghostwriter to help me work on my book. And so he took my 55 pages and we put it together and came up with a book. And I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. So I was, I was very intrigued by your title, From the Zoo to the Wild. Did that come easily for you in terms of a title or did you have to noodle on that for a while? I noodled on it for a while. And I would tell you, there's at least three different publishers who told me this is the worst title ever. Oh. <laughs> so. 
Here we go. I've been told. That's a whole nother episode right there. I just have to say that. But So I've been told it's not the best title, but it's very endearing to me. And if you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. I, I, when I got into the zoo of corporate America, I, was, I felt insulated. It was great. I had a 401k. I had a paycheck every mm-hmm. two weeks. I had my health care paid for me. If I had a bad week, I still got paid. If I had a bad two weeks, guys, I still got paid. If I decided that maybe today wasn't for me, I still got paid. And you know what? When my kids had to go to the the hospital, guess what? I didn't want to pay half of it. And it felt good. And I started being told, hey, Chris, you're doing a great job. And and to be honest, I mean, again, as an entrepreneur, you got to be very self-reflective. I was pretty good uh, at what I did. I wasn't great, but I felt like I was pretty good. So I could get away with it. I kept accelerating up in the career path. And I got intoxicated with it. It was, uh, and I wrote, it's right off the bat, right in the book. I was strolling my daughter and my, I had my one-year-old son and my three-year-old daughter, and we were going through the Atlanta Zoo, and we mm-hmm. came across the Willie B exhibit. And Willie B, which is a famous Atlanta icon, if you go yep. look him up, was supposed to be the king of the jungle. Right. You know? And he had this huge zoo habitat, and that's why you would go there. And I went there, and he was behind plexiglass with a tire in yep. a red tiled room, and that's the picture I have in the book. Yep. And I looked at him and I went, that's the king of the jungle. How about that? And I kept walking. I walked away and I went, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> what have I done? If that's not a mic drop right there, I don't know what is. So <laughs> so that's the book. It starts with the mic drop and that's yeah. what happened. I, uh, it started flooding back and the rest of the zoo trip was an absolute catastrophe for me. All I sat there with myself was I had a piece of paper when I still have it. I, I had it till about a year ago when I was 17, I was challenged. Hey, you want to be an entrepreneur? You want to do something? Hopes and wishes are only done in Disney and in fairy tales. You want to write it down? Then you can do it. So being the defiant little kid I was, the word little would never be in anybody's vernacular with me, <laughs> but I, uh, I wrote down by the time I'm 35, I will own a company. I will have a manufacturing company with 50 employees and will provide parts to the automotive industry. And I was 34 and I was working at, and I had that job that we talked about, Mercedes corner office. And I said, wait a minute, that kid at 17 is still here. Mm -hmm. He just needs to go do it. Mm -hmm. He just needs to get out of the haze that he's in right now and go do it. And that's what started the, the process for me going, wait a minute, what's going on here? So uh, you're talking to somebody who's looking to start down that journey this year. Any, we were talking about earlier in the episode, aha moments, any aha moments you want to share with a budding author? Writing writing a book? Yeah. So writing a book was a lot harder than I thought it would be. It was uh, a bigger journey than I thought. People think writing is easy. It doesn't come easy for this guy. I'm an engineer and I know our time is limited, so you can cut this out, but I want to tell you guys this story. I was in I was in mechanical engineering. I was in a master's degree program with a thesis to be written. I was one of three native English speakers in, uh, out of 20. I wrote my first thesis. I uh, got called. This is back before cell phones and all that stuff. Called to come back and get my thesis. And I went and picked it up. And the assistant gave it to me. And the professor wouldn't even talk to me. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I started, I, so I sat down right in his, in his waiting room and started reading it. And he was on page 10 and it writes, this is gobbledygook. I will stop here. Go to the writing center. Oh no. 
Oh, no. And that's your Fourier into writing for Chris. So um, <clears throat> a budding author writing it, I would say get all your thoughts down. I used the ghostwriter. It cost me some money, but it was definitely worth it because he was able to assemble all of the great ideas I have mm-hmm. in my head, mm-hmm. but take away a really horrible writer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so he makes me look a lot smarter than I really am. So any plans for a book tour? I, I don't have plans for a book tour necessarily. Not even of Atlanta? I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't thought about that yet. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to get out and uh, get the book out there for people. I think it's a great read. I think it's an easy read. I tried to write it in a style that would fit me, which is I don't sit there. I will not read War and Peace cover to end. A long book is not going to hit it for me. I'll listen to a lot of audibles, and there's right now nothing on the horizon for audible. Although it'd have to be. I, I Eventually, I may do it. We'll see how it goes. I'll read it for you. I'll take it. I'll yeah. let you read it for me. Use Zach's voice. I will. That would be He's awesome. He's got that radio voice. Yeah. I always have to turn his his volume down on the podcast. He just has a, that nice big booming. I do want to. I do want to market the book quite a bit because uh, I want to get it out there. The people mm-hmm. I want to read this don't won't know it's out there. It's not. It, it, I think if you get a chance to read it, it's a really unique read on. I'm sitting somewhere and I want to get somewhere else. And it it was a thoughtful process for me. I felt like I did some really good things. It's easy to plan for a, an entrepreneurship when you're in a position where you have money. Mm-hmm. And you're not sitting there struggling going, oh, my God, what's next? Right. But when you make the leap, uh, and I put that in the book, you're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Because well, if you're half the way in, you're all the way out. And I think on that, Chris, it, that's an amazing point is – So many people talk about, oh, well, I'm trying to formulate the perfect time to take that leap. There never is going to be the perfect time. There is never the perfect time. I had a friend who actually pushed me and said, that's it, dude. You got to pick a time because, yeah, I know you're analyzing the the crap out of this and you're thinking this and you don't know. You don't know Mm -hmm. until you get out there. Mm -hmm. So there's never the perfect time. I will tell you, and I put this in the book, we saved up for a year. We have a very comfortable lifestyle. My family did... I wouldn't say the word suffer. That's never the word that happened. We sacrificed. We didn't take some big trips. We didn't do some things. We cut back on some out to eat, some personal lifestyle things and built up that book. Because I I, I do think this, every entrepreneur, we only run out of time, not money. Yep. So we need to wrap up the episode. What is the best way that people can find you either through for your business they need your services or for you personally yeah so want to reach out to you directly. shameless plugging i'm yeah. good for that chris <laughs> at the trusted toolbox.com that's the trusted toolbox.com you can find us online at the trusted toolbox.com the book is called zoo to wild i have a website out there zoo the number two wild.com and then of course there's the home service institute you can find us on instagram well you can find me on instagram you can find facebook and i was about to say TikTok, but I'm only starting to look into that because I now <laughs> I would love that, to see why, you on TikTok. Why? Why do I feel like one of your sons or your son or daughter got you into that? No, they no. in fact they've told me get off of it. Oh. Leave, leave it now, Dad. Dad jokes coming. <laughs> so, Chris, one thing as a reader, a new found reader, I should say, but look super forward to reading the book. Um, definitely going to pick that up. But there's a there's the biggest question we always ask our guests, right? Is, you know, what do the words for your company, for your personal brand, for you in your heart, what do the words generate your value mean to you? 
I get a chance to uh, listen to your podcast, and I've known you guys now for a little under a year. The first time I heard that phrase, I had a response. But today's phrase, and today's in my heart real reflection, is a lot more important to me. So generating your value for me is we all want to be part of something bigger, and I want my team to be able to solve problems where they felt like they were not only part of something, but they volunteered and got into something that made them better people. And that's, that's really what I actually have written that down in my office to be focused on. And so it's pretty powerful. You guys, that's a great question and I love it. And when I first heard it, like a lot of people superficially, you kind of go, okay. And then when you start really digging into it, wow, man, it starts really ripping out in the heart. And that was a great question. And I love the answers. Yeah, we, we really appreciate that. I mean, uh, Zach and I answered the, that question for ourselves in our first episode and it's the reason why I chose that is the name of my company. Because when you really sit down and think about it, it has major ramifications in your life and the, and the legacy that you leave behind in this world. Right. If you focus on those words. Especially when you think about that definition of success. It is not mm-hmm. the go mm-hmm. fast boat. It's not the big truck. It's not the house on the mountain, house on the beach. It is uh, what you guys just said. It's what's your generate your value because that's the stuff you really hang your head on and really get excited about. Well, that's why we say in our intro to the podcast, as success as you define it for yourself. And that definition may change. Well, for one over individual, the course of your it may life, mean right? a, you know, just putting a monetary value on it may mean a million dollars a year. For another person, it just may be not having to worry about a thing ever and their family being okay. Mm-hmm. That's been a struggle uh, for me, you know, the definition of success. Like I said, when I was in the zoo, it was intoxicating and mm-hmm. intoxicating in the whole scheme of everything you guys can think of, right? The the the, the big car, the suits, the mm-hmm. extra stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, I've never been that monetary guy. My line to my wife, <laughs> I know you guys can cut this out too. You we know, won't. We won't. You, you know, you know, when I started this business, I could go back and live in a double wide and I'm going to do it. <laughs> she said, not with this lady. <laughs> oh, and with that, we'll wrap up this yes. episode. Chris, we very much thank you for coming on and joining us in this journey today. It's been a great conversation and we can't thank you enough for, for coming out and doing it uh, with us. Yeah. I think everybody needs to listen to this podcast. It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. So with that being said, Zach, we, we, we thank people for joining us today. Hit that, hit that what? The follow button. The follow button. We're going to start changing from the subscribe button to the the follow button. Zach and I had a discussion after our last episode about subscribe has this connotation of charging the money, right? Subscribe to my club, subscribe to this. We're going to charge you some money. Mm-hmm. And we don't want you to subscribe. We're not going to charge you any money, but we, no. we want you to follow our journey, to join us in this journey as we try to generate value in this world for entrepreneurs Right. For people in general and so forth. So we're going to start calling it hit the follow button, even though it yep. may be labeled on your service, whatever it is, subscribe, hit that follow button. I like and that. Follow idea. us on the journey. Yeah. I like that a lot better because yeah. I think that's a big thing. When you ask people along on the journey, that's part of being, uh, I think that was something I learned early on. I know we're off the clock, so I'm good. But volunteering, if you've mm-hmm. ever worked in a volunteer organization, and then you go back and apply those same principles to your uh, business life, you realize that everybody's, a vol- uh, everybody's a volunteer. When I was mm-hmm. at SunTrust and I was hiring people for a hundred to $150,000 a year job, you had that men- mindset of, what are you going to do to work for me? Mm-hmm. And now you realize the, the way you should have been looking at it, 
hey, can I invite you along on my journey with me? Yep. And I had switched that at SunTrust halfway through. I think a lot of guys would admit that too. Just that, hey, I think we're going to build something really cool here. We're going to do some really neat things. You want to come along? And so with my business, that's always I've, my my artists. I'm trying to invite them along on the journey for them. Maybe don't see it as much, but my office and my office staff for ten years been ten and twelve years, and I've been at it for thirteen. Yeah. So my I've used this term with Zach quite a bit is the my BHAG, which is the big hairy audacious goal. Yep. Out of my business is to create the, the words generate your value into a movement where those words are in the forefront of everybody's mind in their life consistently. Am I generating value today in my thoughts and my actions and yeah. um, everything else? And, it, and to create it into a movement is truly a journey from that perspective. And so I want to keep emphasizing that. Well, and on a closing note again, I've said this three times now. But on a closing note, Chris, you brought up that volunteerism mindset, right? It, it volunteer, I feel it was interchangeable with servant. And Andy, we've talked mm-hmm. so much about servant leadership being right. the truest form of leadership, working for your people and what you've done with trusted toolbox with going into the home service Institute is the embodiment of a servant leader. Mm-hmm. I feel just <laughs> your story and everything and speaking that out into the world is amazing. So. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed it, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. So hit that follow button, join us on the journey, and we'll see you next Tuesday on our next episode. So in, in the meantime, have a great day, have a great rest of your week, and we will see you next time. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Generate Your Value podcast. If you find our conversations to be useful in your life, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can find me online on Instagram at The Fitzpreneur, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For information on my coaching services, if you're in the Atlanta area, go to www.generateyourvalue.com. You can also find me and my company on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Simply search for Generate Your Value on those platforms. Once again, thanks for joining us for today's podcast. And we invite you to generate your value in this world.